Hello, and welcome to the Seven Sage Podcast. I'm J.Y. Ping, and on today's episode, Seven Sage tutor Scott and I discuss five logical reasoning questions from Prep Test 92, which is the most recent prep test released by the LSAT. If you haven't taken PT 92 yet, I strongly advise that you do not listen to this episode. Scott and I want to help you improve logical reasoning, and if we spoil the prep test for you, that would be the opposite of helping you. So again, please don't listen to this until after you've taken PT-92. And if you're wondering when you should take PT-92, well, given that it's a recent prep test, generally the idea is to take it towards the latter half of your studies. Okay, so assuming you've taken the PT, let's get ready to nerd out on some LR. Scott, we're going to look at prep test 92, section 1, logical reasoning. All right, I'm excited. Yeah, me too. So we kind of put our heads together and picked five questions that we think are plenty challenging, and we're going to just kind of talk through them. And I guess we'll do a couple of things. We'll explain the question. Obviously, we'll explain the reasoning behind the right answer and some of the attractive wrong ones, but maybe also take an angle on like what might have trapped students, what might have been tricky psychologically for students for these questions. So we picked questions 16, 17, 19, 23, and 24. And we selected these questions kind of on a objective factors by looking at analytics. You know, analytics told us that these were difficult questions with high percentages on wrong answers, low percentages on right answers, and but, but also subjectively. We felt like there was something about these questions that were pretty hard. Let's kick it off with question 16 from Prep Test 91, section 1. First, with a question stem, this is a, we call a PSA question. We're asked to find something, find a premise in the answers that if we shove it into the argument and the stimulus will most help to justify the argument. So let me first just maybe sum up what the stimulus is saying, and then we can dive in. We got a park ranger talking to us, and the argument goes that it's unfair to cite people for fishing in this new restricted area. That these people probably don't even know that the changes in the regulation have taken place because many of us, us referring to rangers who are supposed to enforce these new changes, we don't even know. And then the ranger finally uh, says, until we've actually made a good effort to get the public to become aware of these new changes, the most that we should do is just to issue a simple warning like, hey, you, you can't fish here anymore. That's the argument. So, Scott, take it away. Let me let me know what you think about this. Yeah. So, I, I think the overall structure is relatively simple. It kind of starts out with a sub-conclusion, or at least that's the way I categorized it, that it's unfair to cite people for fishing in those areas. It then continues on to a premise, which I think is what adds most of the difficulty in the passage, just that it kind of says two things. One, that, it's, that they are probably unaware of the regulations, and then it also includes, as a justification for that, that also the people enforcing them are unaware of it, and then finishes up with the main conclusion of... Of, and this is what we ought to do about it, or kind of the normative judgment. Yeah, that's interesting. When I was looking at this, I wasn't quite sure what to call that first sentence versus last sentence. I also thought maybe it's a subconclusion, first sentence, subconclusion, last sentence, main conclusion structure. But I also, you know, another thought occurred to me, which is it happens quite frequently on the in LR where the conclusion has both like a negative slant and a positive slant. Like, oh, this is bad. You should don't do this, but do that. Or like, X is not causally responsible for Y. Rather, it's Z that's causally responsible, right? So it has that like kind of negative this, but positive that. So I'm never quite sure whether to think of it as like, oh, is one of them the subconclusion? It's not X, therefore it's Y. Or is it my conclusion is actually that, you know, it's a conjunctive conclusion. Here's the positive side and here's the negative side. Sure, yeah. So you could take one and three to be restatements of the same conclusion with the premises stuck in between them, if I'm understanding you right. Right, yeah. I think, you know, ultimately it doesn't really make a difference because if you took the, oh, 
it's not fair to cite people for phishing as the major premise slash subconclusion and use that to support the main conclusion that therefore all we should do is issue a warning. It's not like you're going to get trapped by any of the answers that tries to get in and move you from the major premise to the main conclusion. So ultimately, I don't think this is a distinction that matters. No, but I think the complexity of it does make it a little bit more hard to actually come up with the answer. So because so often what we teach our students to do is, okay, identify the conclusion. Well, this is a stimulus where they've made that intentionally more difficult. Yes, yes. You know, and I I think it's always, again, maybe I come out of this from a different perspective than most people. But as a teacher who has written multiple choice exams for a decade, especially when I get time to actually pick apart these different questions, it does kind of the lens in which I look at it. You know, why did they choose to craft it this way? They could have done this any way they wanted to. They could have made this, of course, a very simple syllogism. They chose not to do that, presumably because they know people are now trained to, okay, identify the conclusion and go from there. Well, they've burned a little bit of your time just by making you scratch your head and try to figure out what the conclusion is. Right. And I think to that point about the complexity of the argument structure, that second sentence has a mini support structure just in and of itself because of that word since. Yes. The public is not aware, probably don't even know about these changes. Why should we believe that? Why should we believe the public isn't aware? Oh, it's because we rangers who are supposed to enforce, like we've not even all been informed of them yet. That's an argument, but the assumption is that the rangers would know before the public knows, which probably is a reasonable assumption. Sure, but it also, I think it'll come up here when we get to C, the answer choice, because (laughs) it kind of implies a principle that you want to latch on and too. And I think it's it's a principle that a lot of people do, in fact, fall for because it's mentioned in that second. And this is a pattern, too, on these PSA questions where the argument structure isn't just this simplistic version of, oh, here's a premise, here's a conclusion. And there really is only one support structure for you to focus on here. There's a mini support structure just living within the second sentence itself that we just talked about. And then there's also the bigger support structure moving from the major premise to the main conclusion, right, about whether it's fair or not to cite people and what we should do when we find that people are violating these new regulations. As it turns out, the correct answer latches onto that main support structure, but that doesn't have to be the case. We have seen in the past PSA questions that latched onto the minor structure. And that's what you're saying about answer choice C. It's, it's, yeah, why don't you tell us what C is saying and then we can talk about that. Yeah, sure. So C essentially says that the public should not be expected to know more about the law than the people who are enforcing the law are supposed to do. And that's alluded to in sentence two of the stimulus. And I think because of how difficult the stimulus is to identify what the clear conclusion is, it makes it really hard to prephrase an answer coming into these. And so I think that's something that people just naturally want to latch onto. Oh, wait, the stimulus said something about this. It seems to support what's being said. That seems to be the answer. And I think it's actually a pretty effective trap. I think it would be a devastating trap if this one actually appeared before the right answer in the order of the answers. <laughs> if, if if you flip A and E on this and make the right answer E, that yeah. becomes devastating. I think it would be one of those 50-50 splits in terms of who yeah. picks one, yeah. the right one, especially because it's in the middle of the exam. It's still that, the part people are trying very to very interesting hypothesis. Yeah. I know that they often try to mess with the ordering of the answers to modulate the difficulty up or down. 
And I'm actually never sure which way. I think I probably go with you on the on this one here. But I can also, if I can hypothesize like about what the test writers are thinking, I can also see them like twirling their mustache, going, you know what? This is such a convoluted argument. Maybe I can just sneak A in first because you know a lot of people. I'm just gonna bank on the fact that a lot of people aren't gonna have time to process all that stuff, so they'll just look at A and have it gloss right over A and maybe land on C later. But given well, analytics, the data we have from analytics is sort of preliminary because this is a relatively new test. But still, yeah. I think you might be right that like the percentages on C would have been a lot higher had A appeared later. Yeah, I mean, again, it's interesting because as a teacher, all of the tricks that I have for building a multiple choice exam are really geared toward avoiding these sorts of things where I'm accidentally tricking students who know the information into making the wrong answers. But they use a lot of those tricks in order to trick a certain percentage of students into making the wrong answers because ultimately they need a curve. For my, my boss doesn't care how many people get A's in my class, so yeah, I really want to check to see who really knows the answer. But they they really need to create a bell curve, and one of the ways they can create a bell curve is by rearranging answer choices and, you know, for that matter, rearranging where a question appears in the order of the section to make it either easier or harder. And that's something we obviously talk a lot about at tutoring. If you know, don't necessarily take that order for granted, you don't have to answer these in the order that they're presenting them. And often you shouldn't. Right, for sure. They definitely don't pull any punches. But let me make the case for why C is attractive and uh, quote unquote correct. It's not correct, but let, let me yeah, make the case for it being correct. So publish and be expected to know more about law than law enforcement. First of all, it just appeals to us. Like, yeah, duh. Like, that seems like if it's not a principle of law, it should be a principle of law. And it also, like you said, Scott, that's the second sentence. That's the assumption in the second sentence. Or at least it sounds very much like the assumption in the second sentence where it says, even those of us rangers are supposed to be enforcing these new fishing regulations. Some of us haven't been informed yet. So the public probably isn't aware of the changes. Doesn't C just pop right into that mini argument and help it out? Yeah, it seems eminently reasonable. Seems like the sort of thing that is true. And in fact, outside of the world of this question, of course, it's something that we would generally agree with. Right. And I will also say that the right answer seems almost the opposite, too, that people should not be cited for violating laws for which they are unaware. Well, generally, as a matter of law, we don't accept that as a principle, right? <laughs> yeah, this is not a principle. Yeah, yeah. Ignorance of law is, is no excuse. So th this, is, this is actually the opposite of the general principle in our real world that our legal system operates under. Yeah. So again, they, they, they've they used that to kind of ferret out, you know, hey, are you just answering what you think the law outside of the question is, or are you really following the logic? And yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> okay. But you haven't answered me yet, Scott. I, oh, think, okay. I think that means you're sold. I think that means you're convinced by my reasoning <laughs> that C is right. No, no. I, so, so I'm sorry, rephrase the question then. Why isn't C right? Like, I think C fits into that second sentence and like kind of helps that second sentence with its mini support structure out. So, I mean, ultimately, at least when I was going through the questions, the thing that really stands out to me is that the A is just a much better answer, that they should not be cited for the laws which they were aware. I think C strengthens it a little bit. I mean, the second sentence already alludes to the truth of C. So I certainly don't think it weakens the argument anyway. A actually provides an unstated principle that you need in order for this to work. Okay, well, maybe after looking at A, we can, we can like come back to C. Oh, sure. um, people shouldn't be cited for violating laws of which there are. So meaning you violate a law that you didn't know you were violating, you didn't know it was a law. That's okay. You get, a, get out of jail free. Nobody's going to cite you. Like, how does that help? So, I mean, obviously, if that's true, it props up both the first sentence that it is unfair to cite people for fishing in newly restricted areas combined with sentence two that they're unaware of the change in regulation. And it also helps us on sentence three that 
until we have a real effort to publicize new regulations, we should do no more than issue a simple warning. So again, distinguishing that law enforcement should do something, namely give warnings, but they shouldn't give citations. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. I think like we were talking about earlier, it doesn't so much depend on how you land on like, oh, is the first sentence and the third sentence, are they both the main conclusion or is one a main or sub? But rather, it does depend on your recognizing that the second sentence, uh, the first part of the second sentence does serve the function of being a major premise, right? That the public probably isn't aware of the changes in regulation. That's a premise. On the back of that premise, we're trying to conclude, oh, because they're not aware, it's not fair to cite them. For this, or rather, we should just issue a warning. And that's where A gets it, right? A's like, well, let me just link the premise to the conclusion. You know, if it's true that they're unaware, then you shouldn't cite them. Great. The premise says they're not aware. So now the conclusion that you shouldn't cite them follows, probably, right? This is this is a PSA question, not a sufficient <laughs> assumption. There's a little bit of room to not logically airtight. But yeah, no, that's a much more powerful answer choice if our goal is to most help to justify the argument. Well, then A does that job far better than C does. And actually, I think C may, in fact, do absolutely nothing <laughs> for an argument because <laughs> yes, if, exactly. we, you know, if we scrutinize C, it's saying that just public shouldn't be expected to know more about the law than law enforcement, right? So meaning, how can you use this principle in an argument? You can use it if you're trying to argue to the conclusion that public shouldn't be expected, like, oh, new regulations for fishing. The rangers didn't know about it. So therefore what? Using this principle, you can say, oh, therefore we shouldn't expect the public to know about it. That's the conclusion that can be propped up by C. Mm -hmm. We shouldn't expect the public to know about it. But if you look at the actual sub-conclusion in the stimulus, it's not whether they should or shouldn't. It's that they probably are unaware. That's the sub-conclusion. It's a descriptive fact that they are probably unaware. It's not a prescriptive thing like, oh, but should they have been aware? It's like, no, 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 I don't care about <laughs> should they have. The fact is they probably weren't aware. And we're going to use that. We're going to use that as a premise to draw a conclusion about whether these citations are fair. That's where the prescription comes in, is at that citation level. It's not, the prescription doesn't enter at that, you know, should the public have been aware, right? And I mean, I think maybe a different angle you can take, a different tack is like, if you just take it to be true that like, okay, so they shouldn't have been aware. They're simultaneously not aware, and they shouldn't have been aware. But then you ask, wait, but does that matter for the citations? Can we still cite them anyway? If they shouldn't have been aware, but, right? Like, you end up having to rely on a anyway, right? Because A is the one that tells you whether you get to cite them or not. Exactly. Yeah, but so C is really tricky. According to analytics, we got 0% on D, 0% on E, and only 4% on B. So maybe let's spend a little bit of time on answer choice B, which says regulations regarding park use should be widely publicized. Should be widely publicized, the regulations. <laughs> what do you got for me, Scott? I guess the reason that this is attractive is that it does seem to prop up the conclusion in sentence three, that until we have made an effort to publicize new restrictions. So in other words, it agrees with the argument that yes, we should be actually publicizing it, but it doesn't in any way support the reasoning for, for sentence two or interact with sentence one in any way. It doesn't seem to actually help the argument as a whole. It doesn't justify the argument as a whole. It maybe justifies one part of sentence three. Mm, okay. Yeah, I see that. Yeah, I can see why that's attractive, right? It's kind of like latching on to this tangential point in the third sentence about setting this condition on when we're allowed to go beyond 
issuing simple warnings. Like, look, until you've made some efforts to publicize these things, you don't get to do anything except issue simple warnings. So that makes you think that like, oh, well, then that means I guess we should be publicizing this more. So that's where B comes in. Yes. Right? B is like, yeah, we should. We should. Yeah. I think that largely works. Both B and C you know, are effective at fooling people because coming out of the stimulus, most students I don't think are going to have a strong prephrase. So they're going to be trying to latch onto something that reminds them of the argument or seems to agree with the argument. And so B and C are both appealing in that way. Yeah, I think for these PSA questions where the argument structure is kind of convoluted, as we said multiple times here, it is difficult to anticipate what the correct answer is going to be. There, your strategy for this question, your strategy is process elimination. Go to A, go to B, go to C, and eliminate your way to the right answer. Yeah. Maybe let's spend just a quick second on D and E, just in case people listening liked D and E or E. Sure. So D says people who are fishing, they should make every effort, right? You really should take every effort to become fully aware of the restrictions. Yeah. So, I mean, th- this is kind of the opposite of what we're looking for in these answer choices. This this actively kills the argument. It's the opposite of what we want. Right. It's like blaming, oh, it's your fault, right? You should have made an effort. Right? If you want it, you, you can kind of think about it like, you know, if I have in my hand this principle, what kind of argument can I make with this principle? What kind of conclusion can I reach? This seems to allow me to reach and like to put the blame on the Fisher people to not <laughs> like it's your fault. You didn't educate yourself on the new restrictions. Sure. And I, I think within the world of this problem, it's a thoroughly unappealing answer insofar as it is it convinces anyone to go for it. I think it does match a principle of law that we actually do see outside of the world of this question. And so maybe that's the principle appeal. Yeah, yeah, that might be the psychological appeal. The burden is on us to uh, make sure we know the law so that we don't run afoul of the law. Yeah, and you're giving this test to a bunch of people who want to be lawyers and who, if they know anything about the law, surely it's that ignorance of the law is no excuse. And this conforms well with that principle. So if you're just, yeah, I mean, that's true. rushing for time and you're just reaching for literally anything, maybe you grab it. Yeah. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Hopefully not our students, though. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How about E? People who are caught in the act of violating law, give them a chance to explain why they think that law doesn't apply to them. So this is where I actually have your voice kicking into my head from those explainer videos when I was studying for the LSAT, (laughs) just saying, wait, where did we get explain why they think the law does not apply to them? That has nothing to do with the argument that we're actually giving in stimulus. It's just irrelevant. So we can just discard it. Yeah, I you know, taking a step back, I feel like E is saying due process. Is that what E is saying? You know, give give them a chance to defend themselves in court. I guess. I guess I, I found this to be the most inexplicable answer. And maybe right. maybe we should like invite some people on here who would have answered E and they can explain what their thought process is. But I can kind of squint at each of the others and see my way to them. But I really struggle with E for why you would pick that one, especially with it being the last one. The last one. Yeah. Well, analytics as of today still says 0%. But like I said, these are preliminary data. So I'm sure these percentages all increase over time. Sure. All right. So I think that's a wrap for question 16. Any any last quick takeaways for this question? I mean, I think the main thing is to just not get flustered if you can't come up with a good prephrase. Yeah. You should be able to go through this and very quickly eliminate D and E. That leaves you with A, B, and C. And then you should be trying to plug these as principles back into the actual argument and seeing, like you were saying, what can I do with this? Does this just restate something that's implied in the argument or does this actually provide something crucial to the argument? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I I totally agree. And I'll just add to it that before you look in the answers, make sure you know what the argument structure is. That's your first major hurdle is the complexity of the argument structure. There are little support structures going on here. If you're not clear on the existence of multiple support structures, then you're going to have a hard time with the answers. Absolutely.
All right, let's move on to question 17. I believe 17 was yours as well, right? Got 17. Yes, the, we only disagreed on one, and that was, it was 19. Ah, or, right. Yeah, yeah, you wanted 19. God, I hated question 19. I, I, I had to put this one in here. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and I, I just, I thought it was funny. The only one of the five that I suggested that you didn't want to talk about is the only one I got wrong. <laughs> Oh, really? Oh, yeah. man. I, I must have overlooked that. Oh, no, that's fine. I'm happy not to talk about that one because it was a dumb <laughs> reason I got it wrong. It wasn't a good, interesting, we can learn something from this reason. It was just, I was tired and it's been six months since I've taken a time section. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's look at question 17. So this one is a flaw slash descriptive weakening question. It says reasoning, argument, most vulnerable to criticism. Those are the indicator words. So the stimulus tells us that for several years now, this school, I suppose, called the Technology Institute, they've been using this new experiment experimental curriculum, which I'm thinking like, if it's been several years, how new is it really? Anyway, whatever. They, they still call it a new experimental curriculum. It's been several years for its plumbing program. So it's plumbing students use this. And then there was a survey run last year. And that survey came out with some pretty unfortunate results that only around 33% of the institute's graduates passed the certification test for it to be a plumber. And 33% is not a good number because it's well below the national average, we're told. So that wraps up the premise set. And from these premises, the conclusion says, okay, well, look, this new experimental curriculum has lowered the quality of plumbing instruction, presumably at the school. This is a conclusion that is causal, definitely causal. The verb here is has lowered the quality, meaning this thing caused a decrease in this other thing. So yeah, Scott, what do you think? Like you sold? <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to realize that the way they make LSAT questions really hard is by making the arguments progressive worse. <laughs> yeah. It's like, where do I even begin? I pity the person at LSAC who has to be thinking of new and interesting ways to make arguments terrible. That can't be a fun job. But it's pretty easy to identify the problem with this argument. Just because one third of students pass or two thirds fail doesn't mean that the curriculum made it worse. It could be that one third pass rate might be a huge improvement over the past. It could be that nobody passed before this. So it gives us no information on what happened before. The tricky thing or the crucial question that we need to ask is what information would I need in order to make this argument valid? Once we kind of figure that out, the obvious answer is that you need to know what the pass rate was before in order to make any headway in this argument or to go any way toward explaining the conclusion that they've come to. Oh, totally. In that sense, this is very much a recurring pattern where they give you some phenomenon and then they try to draw a causal relationship out of that phenomenon. And one of the crutch frameworks that I often tell students to lean on is this idea of like, if you actually wanted to figure this out, like you said, right, if you actually wanted to figure out if the new curriculum lowered the quality, how could you do it? Let's say you're om omnipotent. You can set up any kind of social experiment you want. <laughs> right? You can clone worlds, right? Well, then you would run in a totally unethical fashion. You would run an experiment where you just cloned a lot of these worlds, have some of these worlds where the Technology Institute just used whatever old curriculum they were using, no change, absolutely no change, and then have a bunch of these worlds institute the new curriculum and then change nothing else so that you have a controlled experiment. You're only testing one thing that's varying so that you can be pretty sure that whatever differential results that you're measuring can be causally attributed to that one thing that you allow to vary, which is the new experimental curriculum. So if you could run that experiment, you could actually figure out what impact, causal impact. And you might be surprised to learn that, you know what, 33%, that's actually a huge proof. Like you said, it used to be 3% passage rate. Now it's 33% passage rate. It's a great thing that we adopted this new experimental curriculum. 
It's a very powerful way to just kind of reveal the shortcomings of the logic in, in the argument. I'm going to steal that and use that with a student. So, so you know, that's a, that's a good way to explain it. Oh, please. Oh, I'm surprised you haven't listened to enough of my ex. I probably said this. <laughs> like <laughs> I clearly needed to listen to more. No, you don't. It's because you got a 180 and you don't need to listen to my videos. <laughs> I, did, I did listen to all of your Logic Games videos. <laughs> LR, I didn't need nearly as much help. <laughs> yeah. Let's look at the answers. I think what we just talked about, that's only half the battle. Because if you look at these answers, oh man, the LSAT writers are just brutal. I don't know. You want to start with A? That's that's probably the worst. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. It treats a phenomena as an effect of an observed change in the face of evidence indicated that it may be the cause of that change. So to translate this into something that's a little bit more palatable, this says that the low test scores are treated as an effect of the curriculum when they might actually be the reason for the curriculum. Yeah. Now, say, how did you just do that? That's not some like black magic that you just you just whipped out there, <laughs> right? Like I, I'm still like my eyes are still glazed over from like what? What's this phenomenon as an effect of what? observe change? Well, I'll tell you, I mean, that's something I learned pretty early on studying for LR is that anytime they're using a word like phenomenon, they're trying to confuse you. They could make that simpler. So they have chosen to put in phenomenon. So it, obviously, it'll be a lot easier if I can replace that. So what possible phenomenon is an effect of the observed change? Well, it has to be the low test scores. Like that's the only thing that's an effect here in the causal relationship. And so from that, that makes it a lot easier to decode this thing. I don't think there's any way around it. Either you are just, you've done this so much that you just intuitively, you can think of it as translating. I use a different metaphor. I say you bring this abstract general language, you bring it down to the level of the question, the specificity in the questions, you make it tangible. So it's kind of like throwing a rope around this abstract phrase phenomenon, and then you're tying the other end of the rope to something explicit, specific in the stimulus. There's no way around. You have to do that. Otherwise, you are not comprehending A. You're not comprehending any of these answers that exist at this abstract level of language. So your choices are either to just do this, practice this until you're so good at it that your intuition naturally does it, which I, I don't know if there, again, I don't know if there's any way around this. I find myself, like when I'm doing this under time, if I have some time to reflect on this, I realize I'm, I'm actually not explicitly, or at least most of the time, I'm not explicitly doing this. Oh, let's translate this. Let's make sure I know what I'm, rather most of the time I'm just reading this. I'm like, oh yeah, I think I know what they're talking about. And I don't think this is it, right? No, this, this can't be it. It just doesn't feel right. Again, that's just what you have to do. You just have to keep practicing. You started by saying trees of phenomenon is an effect of an observed change. So you're like, okay, well, what phenomenon did they treat as an effect? Well, it must be the low passage rates, right? The low test scores. That's the only thing they're talking about is the consequence, the effect. So from there, you've got yourself an anchor. You got hooks in. So then you can be like, okay, what are they saying? That's the result of? The result of the new curriculum? Ah, so the observed change must be the new curriculum that they're talking about. Oh, yeah. So in the face of evidence, now that immediately kind of, I'll come back to that. There should be a big question mark in your head as soon as they start talking about evidence with this particular argument, indicating that it may be the cause of that change. So in, in other words, what they're implying here is that there's evidence indicating that actually it's not that the low test scores are an effect of the change in curriculum. But actually, it was the cause. It was the reason that the Technology Institute decided to change the curriculum in the first place. But of course, then there's a big question there. Wait, in the face of evidence, what evidence? 
They provided no evidence that that would be the case. So, I mean, there's there's almost no evidence in this entire thing. So you know, that immediately should stick out to you. Wait, I don't remember seeing any evidence really about anything in, in this stimulus, but certainly not about you know why there might be a reversed causal relationship here. Exactly, right? The fact that, you know, before we looked at the answers, we were able to say, wait a second, but this is totally consistent with the new curriculum actually improving test scores, right? The fact that we were able to mount that objection to this argument is because precisely there's no evidence of it being one way or the other. So that's probably the weakest part of this answer choice. Another thing that I kind of picked up on here was as an effect of an quote-unquote observed change. So the observed change must be the new curriculum. But this is where I was like, but they've already been using this for several years, and they're only talking about the test score from the last year. So going from last year to the year before, there was no change because the curriculum has been in place for several years already. So you'd have to go back, well, more than several years to fairly call this a quote-unquote change. Oh, no, that's really, yeah, no, I think that's a good point. I'll be honest, I just kind of glossed over the word observed to change in there to jump into other things. But yeah, no, I think that's another thing that discounts this answer. No, for, for sure. I mean, the test writers, sometimes they build in multiple failure points in an incorrect answer. And that's good for us to take advantage of when the clock is ticking, because you just need to find one. Find one failure point, move on. Don't waste time. The only reason why I, I see this is because, you know, I got nothing else to do with my life. So <laughs> I'm spending all my time deconstructing this. <laughs> I wonder why this answer choice is so popular. And I don't have a good hypothesis, except that I just suspect that when people read this, they're like, oh, cause effect reversal, right? Yeah, that's something that I've seen the LSAT test before. Plenty of previous flaw questions are like, oh, actually, I think it's supposed to be cause effect reversal. So maybe maybe this is it. I'm not sure I understand what this is saying, but maybe that's it. So that's my best guess at why it is so popular. Well, I think there's also a psychological effect that this is by far the most abstract and erudite sounding answer. And so I think there's a certain an effect of just, okay, I don't fully understand what that means, but you know, I'm not sure what any of these mean. So I'm going to go for the one that sounds really hard, and especially yeah, when they yeah. made the right answer, something that actually is fairly short and simple. And in comparison, that is something that they like to abuse now and again. I think that's good. I buy that. Let's look at answer choice C, which is the right answer. Yeah. So looking at answer choice C, which says concludes that something has diminished in quality from evidence indicating that it is of below average quality. We can use our conclusion descriptors and premises descriptors to kind of identify that this actually accurately describes the argument. So concludes is a word that indicates that what comes after it is going to describe the conclusion. So the conclusion that something has diminished in quality, and in fact, that is what this particular stimulus concludes. And it's from evidence, which is a premises descriptor, indicating that it is of below average quality. So, And that is, in fact, an accurate description of the evidence and the premises. Yeah, I mean, the conclusion here, diminished in quality, I mean, literally says has lowered the quality of plumbing instruction so that that matches evidence indicating that it is a below average quality so is, is that present where's the evidence that indicating it's below average quality well sure and it, it says it pretty ex explicitly on line three well below the national average yeah that's the i mean we can take that to be evidence like the national average is the it's not the only benchmark but it's it's a reasonable benchmark right like what's the national average and if you're falling well below the national average well that's that's fair to say that that's that's evidence that it is below average quality. And to translate this into, you know, kind of simpler language, essentially what this answer choice is saying is that it's making a conclusion that something has changed in a negative way in its quality, just from evidence that it's currently bad. And that ultimately 
isn't, that is exactly what this stimulus does. And also it's a flawed way to argue just because something is bad doesn't mean that it hasn't gotten better over time. Exactly. And this goes back again to what we already said, right? It could be the case. I mean, look, 33%, like being well below the national average, that's not a good look. Nobody's going to dispute that. That's not a good look. But that doesn't mean that it's decreased in quality because, you know, this goes back to what we already talked about. For all we know, this could have been a huge improvement. We should be applauding them for, you know, you still got a ways to go, but hey, good job on making the progress that you have. Yeah, exactly. C is the right answer. Let's look at B next. Yeah, B is also a pretty popular wrong answer. So B says that it uses a lack of evidence that the quality of the Institute's plumbing instruction has increased as though it were conclusive evidence that it has decreased. And the main problem that jumps out to me with B is that ultimately this doesn't use a lack of evidence that the quality of the Institute's plumbing instruction has increased. There is a lack of evidence, but it's not using that. That's a premises descriptor, and it doesn't accurately describe what the premise is. The only evidence that we have in the stimulus is that the test scores are bad and that they're so bad they're below the national average. That's not arguing from a lack of evidence. It's just arguing from insufficient evidence. And so this doesn't ultimately describe the stimulus. That, that's really good. That's really good. Yeah, you, you can just explicitly s say that about, oh, no, B, you're just wrong. The argument is not using a lack of evidence. In fact, it's using the presence of evidence that the test scores are bad. But the problem is that this evidence is present. It's just not enough. It's not powerful enough. It's not the right kind of evidence, right? You can say things about the evidence. But the thing that you can't say is that it's not there. So yeah, no, very good. I, th I think that's right. And for full disclosure, B is hard. B is really hard because, uh, Scott, this is our second take of B because we had to go on a detour, like questioning each other, try to figure out what the hell is going on with B <laughs> because it is really, really confusing. For a while, we were like kind of sold on this, like, wait a second, but there is a lack of evidence, right? Yeah, there is a lack of evidence. So wait, what's going on then? Why can't it be? But I think it's, yeah, it's helpful, really helpful with this, you know, the way you phrase it is really good. Like it's using some evidence. It's just not the right kind of evidence. It's just not powerful enough evidence. But yeah, that's correct. All right. So we go on to D? Yeah, let's do D. All right. It gets simpler from here, thankfully. So uses a national average as a standard without specifying what that national average is. Guilty. Definitely, it did that. I mean, it does that. Ultimately, that's not the main problem with the argument. You can actually take out the well below the national average little aside that it has on line three. And this argument is, I was going to say just as valid, but it's probably better to say just as invalid as if you had left it in. That fact in the argument is not crucial to it functioning. So D ultimately is irrelevant to them. Wait, are you sure? Are you sure about that? Don't you need some kind of touchstone? Because otherwise, how do you know whether one third passing is good or bad? So I guess that that's their evidence that it's bad. But even if you, yeah, so I guess it strengthens the conclusion that 33% is a bad test result. But ultimately, it, that doesn't help you one way or another on determining a causal link. So, oh, oh, I see. So you're saying you're saying ultimately, even if so, like if we strip out well below the national average, if we strip out our metric, then what we're left with is we don't know what 33% passage rate means. Is that good? Is that bad? We don't know. Well, yeah, because the conclusion is that the new curriculum has lowered the quality of the plumbing instruction. So yes, without that metric, we wouldn't necessarily know that 33% is bad. Maybe 33% is good. But their conclusion is that the new curriculum has lowered the quality. So maybe it was fantastic before. And now it's merely mediocre or whatever. But so in other words, the fact that the national average is a standard here isn't crucial to the functioning of the causation of the argument. Right, right, right. Yeah. Okay. So, so I do just want to clarify though, but if we do strip out that metric of taking the national standard as the touchstone for what's good and bad, that does change the nature of the argument because then C wouldn't be correct anymore. C would be failing to accurately describe the argument because the premise descriptor in C is from evidence indicating that it is of below average quality. That maps on 
only because we have this national standard metric, which supports the inference that this is a below average quality. So it would change C if we remove the the national average descriptor. But the causal, I mean, ultimately, the conclusion is all about the causation, at least the way it's phrased in sentence three. So we would have to change how we describe C instead of from evidence indicating it was below average quality, it would said be from evidence indicating that it's below. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, no, it would be hard to phrase it. I understand why. You'd have to say something like from evidence, from ambiguous evidence about its quality, because then if you remove that standard, you don't know what 33% means. That's true. It could be a crazy hard test where 33% is actually ridiculously good. The test makers expected 10% to pass. Maybe the better way to phrase the fault with D is that it uses a national, in saying that it uses national average as a standard without specifying what that national average is, it's not important what the national average is for the functioning of this argument. Exactly. That's a pretty recurring pattern, I think, in wrong answers. Wrong answers for flaw questions where it just spouts off some random true thing about the argument, like descriptively accurate. It is true that the argument didn't specify, like, what is national average, right? I know 33% is well below. So what's national average? 60%? 80%? Either of those are would result in 33% being well below. But does it really matter if the national average is 80% or 60%? No, the reasoning in the argument isn't better or worse for figuring out what the specific national average is. And that's why this is not putting its finger on the weakness of the argument, just some random true thing. No, I like I like your explanation for D a lot better than mine. They do this a lot. They just say some random thing. Yeah, sorry. And this is probably an aside that's not worth putting in it. But that is something I tell my students a lot is that the easiest of the answer choices to write is always the right one. All of the wrong answers, you have to come up with something that is tricky. And usually you have to do it by saying something that's true. Because if it's just demonstrably wrong, I mean, I guess you'll fill up space, you know, you'll fill up an answer choice, but no one will ever select it. You have to have some something attractive about it. Yeah, totally. E. The last answer is also really popular, even though it's not right. <laughs> what, what do you think about E? So yeah, confuses a factor's presence being required to produce a phenomenon with the factor's presence being sufficient in itself to produce that phenomenon. To translate this a little bit more, this says that the curriculum is necessary to cause the phenomenon, which again, like in A, is the scores lowering, but it is not sufficient to cause the low scores. The problem is that there's no evidence of the phenomenon at all. In other words, the phenomenon that it's appealing to is that the scores have lowered, not merely that they are low. And there is no evidence that the scores have decreased over time to invoke here. Yeah. I mean, E is just also like a recurring answer in these flaw questions, right? It's invoking this efficiency necessity confusion in this causal space. It's saying, oh, there's some factor that's a necessary cause, like you have to have this causal factor present. But then the argument thought that factor is the sufficient cause. What is a necessary causal factor for being alive is the presence of oxygen. But oxygen isn't sufficient. You also need other stuff. You need food, you need whatever else. So that, according to E, that's the mistake that the argument has made. And yeah, as I like to phrase it, they, right. they're giving us the right answer to the wrong question. You yeah, know, yeah, the, yeah that's there, right. there are plenty of LSAT questions where this would have been correct. This yeah. just doesn't happen totally. to be one of them. Totally. All right. Any quick takeaways from question 17 before we move on? No, I think this was a lot more straightforward than the last one. I think the trick really is that the questions themselves or the answer choices themselves were considerably more challenging to come through. And so just a lot of the work is in just decoding and making sure that you understand which answer choices that you're excluding and which ones are worth considering. Yeah, totally. I'll just reiterate that a part of what you said. I think just the most important part is making sure you are understanding 
these answer choices. And these answer choices are really abstract. They're worded in this abstract way designed to get you to not understand what they're saying. So the burden is on you to make sure you decode it. And that's it. Okay, so next question we're going to look at is question 19. This is my pick. It's a weakening question. In terms of the presentation of information, it's pretty straightforward. Just premise, premise, conclusion. So first sentence says that productivity growth, we're talking about industrialized nations, that productivity growth has substantially slowed ever since the 60s and 70s, and the 60s and 70s was when computer technology was widespread. So this is a description of a trend, of a phenomenon, of a trend at the level of industrialized nations. So pretty high level. Now the next sentence, sentence two, we zoom in a little bit more. We get slightly at a lower level. It's talking about productivity growth now in industries. So automotive manufacturing, heavy industries, computer technology, whatever service industry. So they're saying in most industries that rely most heavily on computer technology in those industries, productivity growth also dropped. That's kind of a similar phenomenon, but now this trend is at a lower level at the level of industries. And finally, we get to the conclusion, which has thus a business that's very, very specific, a business that has increased its reliance on computer technology probably hasn't improved its productivity growth by doing so. So I'm thinking, okay, that's the argument. I don't know, sounds sounds okay, right? Like if this is a trend, it's productivity growth dropping because of computer technology. If this is a trend at the level of countries, if this is a trend at the level of industries, sure, why shouldn't I expect a business that increases reliance on computer technology to also experience a drop in productivity? Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that makes this one particularly difficult because, again, it defies just an, an easy prephrase. You don't come out of this thinking, oh, yes, and I immediately identify what's what's going on here and why this is why this is fundamentally broken. Yeah. I mean, I think in general, I don't even try. Like with weaken, strengthen, evaluate questions, as soon as I recognize that the reasoning in the argument is causation, it's called causal mm-hmm. logic, right? You talk about correlations, causations, hypotheses, alternative hypotheses. As soon as I recognize that, I don't even try to anticipate what the correct answer is going to be, precisely because there's too many variations. I think the question types that are amenable to, I can have a good handle on what the correct answer might say, are sufficient assumption questions, certain must be true and MSS questions, flaw questions, method of reasoning questions, those, those questions, even some necessary assumption questions are amenable to that. But like, you know, for a question like this, I'm just like, okay, something's going on, I don't really know what it is, but let's maybe examine this argument like before we, or actually, I don't know, what would you do, Scott? Would you like just dive right into the answers? So after reading it, if I don't come away with a clear prephrase, I don't have, and I'm, I'm exactly with you, with strengthened and weakened arguments, I almost never, I, I don't really expect to come away with it. If they're really easy, I might come away with, oh, well, I can see, I think I can see where they're going with this, or I can anticipate the, the sorts of answers that I might receive on this. But I certainly don't come away with that in this. So yeah, that's where I would go ahead and dip into the answers and try to figure out what's going on here. I will say, though, that one of the things I noticed and what I would tell some of my clients immediately what struck out to me as after I get out of the stimulus is just the length of the answer choices here. So one of the pieces of advice I would often give, particularly for students who struggle with time, is, okay, there's clearly a lot more to read here than on the average <laughs> question. This is probably a good candidate just from that, because you can make that assessment really quickly, just, oh my goodness, there are a lot of long answer choices. This is a flag and wait till the end. 
for me. And in fact, that's exactly what I did when I got to this one on the test is I flagged it. It's like, this is going to take time. I'm sure I'm going to have time for it, but I don't want to go through these answer choices and do this process of elimination, which is going to be laborious. And I want to make sure I get it right the first time. I don't want to do that while I'm also thinking, okay, wait, I've got a few more questions here left to do. And I really want to make sure I have time for them. You know, where am I at on time? And I'm constantly looking back and forth the clock. I want to do this when, okay, I've looked at every question at least once. And so I've saved this at the end. So I really feel like I have time to go through these and I'm not having that kind of nervous eye twitch going up to the clock, making sure I'm not burning too much time. Yeah, totally. I say something similar for students who know that they have deficiencies in conditional logic. If you know that your conditional logic is weak, your short-term strategy is just to skip these like must-be-true sufficient assumption questions, right? Mm -hmm. um, your long-term strategy, well, obviously depending on what the long-term means, how long is long-term, but that's where you spend the best time to get better at the logic. But yeah, time management, short-term, skipping is your friend. Okay, maybe what we can do is I can look at A. I'll try to make an argument for A, right? Like, because A is quite a popular answer choice, even though it's not right. It's just that the industries that rely most heavily on computer technologies, they've been burdened by inefficiencies that have substantially hindered their productivity growth. So I think where this answer hooks up to the argument is in that second premise, where the second premise is telling us this trend in industries that most heavily rely on computer technology. It's saying that, look, in those industries that most heavily rely on computer technology, productivity growth has been dropping. So that's a trend, right? That's just a correlation. It's baiting us to make this causal, draw a causal assumption out of it. It's baiting us to say, oh, okay, then I see what's happening. In these industries, it's the, it's the computer technology. They are to blame. They're what's responsible for the decrease in productivity growth. So A, I feel like it's coming in and saying, hold on, not so fast. There might be an alternative explanation here, another hypothesis. It might not be the computer technologies that's responsible for the productivity growth decline. It might be these other vague inefficiencies <laughs> that A references. They have been burdened by inefficiencies because we know these inefficiencies substantially hinder their productivity growth, right? So it's kind of like, you know, shifting the blame away from computer technology as the responsible agent at the level of the industries. It's shifting it away from computer technologies and onto these other inefficiencies. In that mode, A is correct because it presents an alternative hypothesis, an alternative explanation that's different from the implied explanation in the argument that it's because of computer technology that productivity growth has decreased. So I, I would identify two problems with that. The first is that there's kind of a fallacy of composition happening with number A by saying that ultimately the conclusion is talking about specific businesses. But the answer choice identifies specific you know, entire industries that rely most heavily on computer technology. And it's not necessarily true that all of the properties of the whole are shared by all of the parts. So I think that would be the most obvious one. So you're, you're saying even if what A is saying here, mm -hmm. that even if we can say for those industries that we don't want to blame computer technology, we should blame the inefficiencies, these other inefficiencies that A is talking about, that, that still doesn't address the fact that the conclusion talks about a particular business. That's what you meant by the composition shift, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I think of it in terms of sets and members. Like you're talking about sets of different industries. It's not clear that this business that in the conclusion that you're talking about, this business has membership in those sets that were mentioned in the premises. Yes. Yeah. So in other words, it's it could be that 
in those industries that most heavily rely upon computer technology that, yeah, there might be another alternative explanation with respect to those industries. But there's nothing to say that the business that we're talking about, because really in the conclusion, we're talking about all businesses are necessarily going to be able to avail themselves of that alternate hypothesis. Right. Yeah, that's right. Like, I think, you know, if we make it more tangible, then, you know, maybe they're saying, what are these industries that most heavily rely on computer technology? Maybe it's car manufacturing. That's the industry. Even if A comes in and tries to provide an alternate explanation for what's responsible for it at that level of the industry, car industry, it's not even clear that we're talking about Ford Motor Company in the conclusion or GM, right? Because mm-hmm. the conclusion says a business modified, a business that has increased its reliance on computer technology that could be Ford or GM, or you could be talking about a space business, right? Or like, I don't know, a hair salon that increases technology. In which case, what A is doing, like sparring with the hypotheses in the second sentence seems rather irrelevant because we haven't even established the relevance of the causal framework at the level of the industry as it applies to this particular business because this business might not be in that industry. Yeah, I think A is like a pretty tricky answer though because, it, you know, in weakening questions, what is the most common kind of correct weakening answer choice in a causal argument where they give you some phenomenon and they give you a hypothesis as a conclusion? It's this, it's alternative hypothesis, right? They say like, well, no, don't blame this because it's this other thing. Here they're playing with that. I'll also say that the being been burdened by inefficiencies is sufficiently vague that it's not necessarily exclusive with the explanation that's given in the actual conclusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. it could be that those inefficiencies are because internet speed is really slow. So I think that would be the other thing that jumps out at me about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. No, so like if we if we were really charitable to A and be like, well, I guess you didn't, when you said inefficiencies, that's upset. You didn't mean the computer technology inefficiencies, right? Because that would not be good. But, you know, we don't have to be, we, we can just be fair to A. And being fair to A, A didn't say what these inefficiencies are. So I, I don't know if you're talking about computer technology inefficiencies or non-computer technology inefficiencies. No, very good. So A was attractive, for sure. The other answer that's attractive was C. C is even more attractive than A. And again, maybe I'll just talk about C and see if I can make a case for it. It says that productivity growth in industries responsible for producing computer technology has increased substantially as computer technology has become more widespread. So in other words, the more and more computer technology has been adopted, you know, your Microsoft, right, your, your Apple computers, those industries responsible for producing, they have seen productivity growth shoot up substantially. So doesn't that just directly challenge the conclusion that businesses that increasingly rely on computer hasn't improved? No, like here, C is giving us entire classes of businesses and entire industries that have seen an increase. And that would follow if those industries were, you know, an overwhelming majority of the total class of businesses that have increased its reliance on computer technology. But there's nothing in the world of this question to presuppose that industries responsible for producing computer technology account for any substantial percent of the total businesses who rely upon computer technology. They could be 1%. They could be half a percent. It could be one Right. It could be one company. So that doesn't in any way attack the conclusion that a business probably hasn't improved its productivity by adopting computer technology just based off the fact that this potentially like incredibly tiny subset of companies have actually become more productive. 
Yeah, no, that that's right. I, I think I would go even further. I would say that C contains within it evidence of its own non-representativeness mm. because C is explicit about what kind of industry what we're talking about. Industries modified, right? Industries responsible for producing computer technology. So, so that's that's Microsoft, right? That's Intel. That's Apple. Those are the industries or companies that we're talking about. It's not surprising that with the wide adoption of computer technology, that the businesses supplying those technologies have grown. That's not surprising, but that cannot be taken to be representative of the kind of business that's being described in the conclusion. Because again, the conclusion says a business that has increased its reliance on computer technology. Sure, that probably includes businesses like Apple and Intel, right? They produce computers. They themselves probably have increased reliance on computers. But like I said before, that also probably includes your barbershop because barbershops probably doing their accounting books online now <laughs> instead of like actual paper and pencil. So that includes, I don't know, whatever else, your ice cream store. Right. So that's a much wider set of businesses. So just, you know, having what we have in C, you know, that Intel and Apple have, what does that say? That says nothing about this wider class of businesses. No, exactly. Yeah. So I think at this point, it's like two answers now are honing in on our ability to make fine distinction in sets and subsets. Like, what are we talking about, really? Are we at the level of the business? Are we level of the industry? And even if we are on the same level, what's the relationship here? Are they just intersecting sets or are they non-intersecting sets or partially overlapping sets or, or whatever it is. I think having like kind of the idea of sets, membership in sets, it's a very powerful framework because, you know, you have questions like this that call on that framework and other questions, like tons of other questions that rely on your ability to manipulate those ideas. Yeah. And it's certainly, I mean, not only are the questions playing around with the, that idea of sets and different different scopes upon which this productivity is increasing or decreasing, but the stimulus itself really plays with that idea. Yeah, yeah, that stimulus itself, right, kind of like starts high at the level of nations, down to industries, down to businesses. Yeah, no, that makes it, I think, considerably more difficult. I got this answer right when I went through it, but it took me a long time. And I think a lot of that time was spent just trying to make sure I understood how all of the different sets are trying to go together, both in the stimulus and how they're being invoked or how new ones are being created in the questions or in the answers, rather. Yeah, I mean, and speaking of the right answer, that's D, which says within any given industry, the businesses that have seen the greatest productivity growth are the businesses that have invested most heavily right, in computer technology. So why does that weaken the argument? Because, you know, essentially it's taking a broad scope, all the businesses whose productivity and growth has been the greatest have been those that invested most heavily in computer technology. That invites us to assume then that, or to conclude that, okay, even though productivity has dropped as the use of computers has risen, there must be some other explanation other than the adoption of computers, which is core to the actual conclusion. So in other words, productivity has been dropping, but apparently it's not because of the computers themselves, because those who have been adopting the computers most heavily have seen things increase. There must be something else to it. No, totally. I really like this answer choice because it fits the mold of an alternative hypothesis. It also points out this set change moving between the premise to the conclusion, right? Like, because, you know, before you get to this answer choice, you lo you're looking at the, forget the first premise, right? At the level of nations, just that second premise at the level of industries. You're, you're looking at that premise. You're thinking, wait, productivity, growth, industries that most heavily rely on computer technology have experienced the most decrease, right? The sharpest drop in productivity growth. That doesn't put computer technology in a good light. We are thinking it's the computer technology that's responsible. But then, you know, here comes D that says, look, whatever industry you want within any given industry, just pick your industry, any one of them, the following is true. And the following is that 
the businesses that have seen the greatest productivity growth have invested most heavily in the computer technology. So it's saying like, forget your causal analysis at the industry level. When you get down to the business level, the particular business, it doesn't hold. It's consistent. Computer investment in computer technology is consistent with productivity growth. And if anything, it actually correlates positively with productivity growth. So there has to be something else going on here. It doesn't say what it is. It doesn't tell us what the alternative hypothesis is, but it's strongly implying there's some other alternative hypothesis inconsistent with the conclusion, which this predictive conclusion that if you are a business and you increase your reliance on computer, then you probably haven't improved productivity much. I love that statement with any given industry, because as soon as I got to that answer choice, I, oh, so you're giving me permission to cut through or cut across all of these different sets you've given me before. Thank goodness. I was really hoping that something here would give me that permission. No, it's really strong, right? Like with that qualifier there within any given industry, the rest of this is true. That's really powerful, which is great. You know, it, it very effectively weakens the reasoning and the argument. Anything else about D or should we talk about B and uh, E? I think that covers it. Let's talk about B and E. Let's look at B next. Productivity growth in many less industrialized nations also has dropped substantially since the 60s and 70s. What's your response to that one? So ultimately, I'm going to regard this one as irrelevant. So just the fact that other places experience a similar phenomenon doesn't in any way weaken this argument. It doesn't really impact this argument in any way. So uh, I mean, I guess if we're being really charitable to the answer that we could say that, okay, less industrialized must or you might mean that they are relying less on computers. But that's not definitively true. That doesn't have to be true. Maybe there's a bunch of businesses in those less industrialized nations are increasing their reliance on computer technology as well. Less industrialized doesn't mean Stone Age. So ultimately, this doesn't really impact the argument directly at all, just because they're also experiencing the same phenomenon. Yeah, I think I agree. I mean, my first reaction was also just, what's this? God, who cares? This is not relevant, right? You know, the premise already established the phenomena, the trend for industrialized nations, and then it established the trend for industries that most heavily rely on computer technology, which it's not a rule of logic, but just given what we know about the world, it's reasonable to assume that reliance upon computer technology goes hand in hand with being industrialized, right? So then you you talk about like, less industrialized nations, and then that this phenomenon also holds. I don't want to say it strengthens argument because I don't think it does. But like, you're just, you're like, oh, look, industrialized nations, I spotted this trend. Now look over there, less industrialized nations, I also spot this trend. Wait, we're trying to weaken this argument here. Like, you know, what, what is this, right? Like, what is this distracting nonsense? Yeah, no, this is definitely one of those where I just kind of hear you in my head telling me it's irrelevant, and thus I should be moving on. <laughs> All right, let's, let's move on to E, which says, uh, within the next few years, we got recent technological advances, almost certainly make investments in computer technology among the most effective ways for any business to improve productivity. Yeah, the entire stimulus is in the past tense, and this is in the future tense. So it's not relevant. Yeah, like it's a prediction about what will happen in the future. <sighs> yeah, it's not relevant, right? We're trying to figure out the causal forces at play that have already happened. Like, unless the future can affect the past, is not relevant. Yeah, I mean, this could be absolutely true, and it would not in any way mean that the conclusion of this is any less true. Yeah, that's right. All right, so that's it for question 19. Any quick takeaways? No, other than, again, I think just the complexity of the, the different sets that you're playing around with in the stimulus and the length of the answer choices themselves I definitely makes this one of the more challenging questions on the test. 
Yeah, for sure. I would say if this question gave you trouble, try to see if you can recapitulate the reasoning here that you've heard and see if you can couch it in the language of moving from higher level phenomenon down to lower level phenomenon and noticing the shifts in the sets and how they do it linguistically. How do they achieve that effect? And the answer is they do it by using modifiers, right? Nouns that get modified. Oh, businesses, whose productivity growth has blah, 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 blah. Industries, that blah, 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 blah. That's how you start with a set and you cut down into subsets. All right, let's move on to the next question, which is question 23. This one is, this one's yours. Actually, I, I, I wanted to pick this one too. This one sucked. It's another weakening question. It's a weakening accept question, which is always a sign that you're dealing with an awful argument. The reason is just straight up terrible. <laughs> Yeah, let's let's dive in. Maybe I'll just sum up the argument here. So first, the stimulus tells us that, you know, on Earth, biological activity leads to a change in the ratio of isotope S34 to S32. This, this is just like pure science jargon that actually has no consequence. And the thing that I hate about it most is that you don't know that it has no consequence until later. At first, you're not sure if I can just not pay attention to this thing. Eventually, you figure out that actually every time they say the word ratio, either it directly references this ratio of isotope S34 to isotope S32, or it explicitly just says it, ratio of S. So as it turns out, it doesn't even matter. Basically, on Earth, something happens. The thing that happens is that life leads to a change in ratio. So life causes a change in ratio. Okay, next we learn that we discovered a meteorite from Mars, and that exhibited ratios of these elements found only in terrestrial minerals on Earth dating from before the beginning of life on Earth. So meaning life causes change in these ratios. We found this rock that has the ratios pre-life, prior to life. But this rock, the twist is that this rock is from Mars, right? It's from Mars. So they say, well, look, you know, that means this is evidence that, that there's no life on Mars. That's the argument. <laughs> so where to start with this? So, I mean, I'll, I'll go ahead and point out that you know, there, so there are two obvious flaws to this argument that, that jump out at me. The first is that Sentence one talks about biological activity on Earth, but ultimately draws a conclusion about biological activity on Mars. And that only works if any statement that we would make about biological activity on Earth would also apply to biological activity on Mars. And there's absolutely yeah. no reason for us to conclude that. It's a false analogy. Right. Exactly. This is a reasoning. This is an argument that works on the reasoning of analogies. And there's a lot of reasons here to think that this is an instance where the analogy just wouldn't carry through. There's just way too many factors at play that determine what the causal impact of life on Earth would be, whether those causal impacts would be the same as on Mars. I mean, Mars is a very different place. So it's, it's not hard to imagine that those causal forces would interact differently on Mars. That's one, broadly speaking, point of weakness in this argument is this reliance upon analogies. Yeah. And the other is that it, in sentence two, it talks us about I, I, the meteorite of Martian origin, which I abbreviate in my head as Mars rock. And it says that the Mars, it talks about the Mars rock and draws conclusions about the whole of Mars, which is a, you know, a fallacy of composition. It's assuming that the conditions, the ratio on this rock are representative of the entire planet of Mars, which there are lots of reasons to believe, at least within the world of this question, that that would not be the case. Yes, yes, that's right. So that's it. I mean, that's a, a logical issue that's come up in the past. We've seen it and we, we typically say that, oh, this is like a potential part to whole issue. You can, you can say it, there are lots of different ways to describe it. You said fallacy composition. You can say, well, you know, is it true that these characteristics of this particular rock carry over to the characteristics of the Martian planet as a whole? Because, you know, Mars is the big place. This rock is fairly small. You know, this rock may actually be not representative of Mars in general. So you can think of it as part to whole issue. You can think of it, I already used the word representative 
competitiveness. That's another way you can think about this. But yeah, that's the other major point of weakness in this argument. I think if you got this far, if you've identified those two major issues, you're probably good to go. I suspect though, and I know this was, recall this was the case for me, just the analogy flaw was so glaring that it kind of blinded me a little bit to this part to whole issue. I didn't even realize the part to whole issue until, until I got into the answers. And that could be a little confusing if, if that was the case, because there are answers that, that play around with that. But let's go with the analogy. Which answers do you want to look at that touch upon that issue? A and B, I think, were the ones that obviously touch upon that faulty analogy. Yeah. I mean, A, I, I think, is just pretty explicit life forms that have a different effect on the ratio than life forms on Earth could have evolved elsewhere. But basically saying, hey, don't don't be so quick to think that all these causal factors have to be the same on Mars. Could have been different. And then B... B does almost exactly the same thing. The effect of life on the ratio depends on a number of climatic and environmental factors with respect to which Earth and Mars differ. So in other words, it's calling out, you know, hey, that ratio depends upon things being the same on Earth and Mars, and they aren't. No, that's right. Yeah. Actually, I think I might have misspoke. If I, I don't remember if I said A was more, B is definitely more explicit. B is more specific and explicit. A is the one that's like hinting at it, but B is the one that explicitly says it, right? That's just different. Okay. So that, that's the analogy issue. Now between CD and E, all three of them talk about whether this rock represents, whether this rock has something important to say about Mars, but like two of them are right. One of them is wrong. Let's look at D and E first, which are the two answers that effectively weaken the argument, so leaving us with answer choice C as a correct answer. So D, right, D says relatively few samples containing the S34, whatever the ratio, indicate the presence of biological activity on Earth. It says terrestrial, so that means on Earth. So what's the relevance of that? Like, why do we care about, like, what does that matter? So in other words, what it's saying is that any individual rock on Earth is not necessarily, doesn't reveal the, isn't representative of the ratio of all of the other rocks that are on Earth. So you know, in fact, relatively few rocks that you would find or terrestrial mineral samples that you would find anywhere on Earth would contain the ratio in a way that indicates biological activity. So that invites us to assume that, well, even if there isn't this analogy problem between Earth and Mars, it could be that this one meteorite that we have from Mars is just like on Earth. It might be one rock that doesn't have the biological activity ratio, but that plenty of other rocks on Mars that just didn't happen to turn into meteorites and land on Earth, plenty of those would have the ratio. Yeah. And, and so I think similar to A, this answer choice is kind of just subtly hinting. It's not as explicit as we'll get to E next, but E is more explicit. This is just hinting at it. It's saying even on Earth, like, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? Like, I didn't, I didn't even think about this, but you think about all the, think about the entire crust of the Earth as like chop them up into little rocks. What proportion of rocks, if you look at them, what proportion would tell you that there's life on Earth? I don't think it is 100%. I mean, it might be 100%. I, I don't know. I'm not a geologist, but like, it probably is less than 100%. Of the rock. So depending on what that percentage is, right, some of those rocks that you look at, maybe you're just unlucky, right? You found a rock that has no evidence of life. And then what? You want to draw a conclusion from that one piece of rock that therefore there's no life on Earth? That's what D is warning us against. Don't reason like that. Don't assume that the rock that you have is representative. No, exactly. And then E just kind of hits that nail a lot harder on the head, that the current ratio on Mars is different from that at the time the material in the meteorite left Mars. So even if this rock was you know, somehow representative of the entire surface of Mars, it may not be representative of the same time frame. And in fact, we know on Earth in the world of this problem that there was a time in Earth when the ratio was the same as what we're seeing in this Mars rock, and yet we see life on Earth. It could be that this could have been billions of years ago. Life could have emerged in Mars in in the years since this meteor was blasted off the face of Mars. So this doesn't really tell us anything about the current situation of Mars. So that would certainly weaken the conclusion. Yeah, that's right. I think E is like kind of symmetric to B in that regard in that both of them are much more 
explicit in what they're doing. So how about C then? C is the right answer. What do you think about that one? So on C, the ratio in the meteorite is the same as that on Mars as a whole at the time that the material in the meteorite left Mars. In other words, what it's saying is it actually solves the composition fallacy that I mentioned earlier. So it's explicitly stating that, no, no, this particular rock is representative of Mars as a whole. So that would strengthen the argument. It doesn't make the argument valid because it has this whole other false analogy problem. But it does solve one of the two problems that this argument has and thus serves to strengthen the argument. Right, right. The only amendment I would make is that it partially solves the composition problem, right? It partially solves the representativeness problem because C tells us that it's representative up to a certain moment in time in Mars. I mean, we don't know if it's still representative. That's an open-ended question. How old is this rock? How long has it been here? How much time has passed on Mars? And how much is that enough time for life to evolve? We don't know the answer to any of those questions. But what C does give us is it partially patches up this question of representativeness. At least we know that it's representative up to a certain point. That figures into the argument by helping the argument, not hurting the argument. Again, like you said, it doesn't even help that much because it could still be the other analogy issue is still an issue and the other half of the representativeness issue is, is an issue. And I think it's often the case with we can accept questions is that often the difficulty in identifying the right answer is that you want the right answer to do a lot more than it actually does. You want it to make the argument good. But of course, they're using in order to be able to come up with four other statements, they have to have an argument that's just so terrible that, you know, you're not going to have one statement that solves the whole problem. That's right. That's right. And, and it's, it's not even, you don't even need to strengthen the argument. The correct answer just has to not weaken. That's it. I mean, yeah, you can strengthen. That's not weakening. But you could also just be irrelevant. That's also not weakening. All right. Any quick takeaways for this one? The, the one thing I would point out, you mentioned at the very beginning, that I think being able to reduce the jargon in this is key to solving it efficiently. So being able to recognize that the ratio of the isotope S34 to isotope S32 and making that something simpler that you can keep your head, like the ratio, uh, or for that matter, reducing terrestrial minerals down to rocks or something like that. Those little things can really cut through the jargon, especially if you struggle in any way with reading comprehension. So this, I, I definitely will be using this question with you know, students and tutoring in the future just because I think it's a great demonstration of how you can simplify the jargon and make this problem much easier to solve. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That, I mean, this test is like, it's so demanding. Earlier, just a couple questions, maybe two questions ago, I think we were talking about how you have to take the abstraction and make it more specific and explicit, basically undo the abstraction. And now two questions later, we're saying, but you also need to be able to abstract when it's required, because here details will kill you. You need to just be able to abstract away from the unnecessary details. But you know, this is a skill where we see tested over and over, like in reading comprehension, when I tell people to do low resolution summaries. All that is, is abstracting away from the detail into something more general. Well, and it's especially mean that this is question 23. So it has all of that nasty jargon. It's an accept question. All of that is going to tend to make this question take longer to solve. And then you already have a lot of people taking it who are going to be running out of time. Yeah. Yeah, no, totally. All right. So let's look at the last question that we're going to talk about today. Question 24. This one is a necessary assumption question. Question stem says assumption requires, editorial's argument requires. So editorial says last year, there were many polls. Now these polls found that most people in our country claim that they are tired of television news shows, specifically the news shows obsession with celebrity scandals. So they claim they're tired of it. They also claim that they're not willing to watch these shows anymore. So the polls reveal that most people make these two statements. And then the argument says, but at the same time, ratings of television news shows soared. So it's like, yeah, people are saying this, 
But if you actually look at what happened, the ratings went up. The ratings went. So you, you might be questioning, wait, what, is, what, what does that mean? Like, does that mean people watch? That is what it means. I mean, it's, it's not wrong that you're questioning this. It's, it's an assumption that you got to keep in your mind. But it's one of those like good enough assumptions, right? Because they're bigger fish to fry here. Ratings went up. Yes, people actually did watch this. Now, from this, the editorial argues that when responding to polls, whether or not people are aware of it, they're actually portraying themselves as how they wish to be perceived rather than what they actually are in reality. Okay, so that's the argument. And this is a necessary assumption question. So Scott, what do you, what do you think about this? You know, just breaking down the argument. So we have at the beginning that polls found that most people claim to be tired of TV shows. Ratings for TV news increased over that same time period. Therefore, people often betray themselves as they wish to be betrayed. That's a big jump from sentence to the conclusion in sentence three. That's immediately what jumps out to me when I hit this question. A much more natural conclusion from this would be, therefore, some people watch these shows even though they told the polls that they were tired of them or something like that. So we got this whole phrase of like portray themselves as they wish to be perceived and go some sort of like deep existential philosophical <laughs> response to this. Yeah, psychoanalysis here. I know you just want me to think that you are not a Philistine, but you are watching those reality shows night and day. Yeah, I mean, like, I really like that. Like, if you ask yourself, what is the safer, the more strongly supported conclusion that you can actually draw from this? You wouldn't say this. You would say, well, this indicates that whether or not people are aware of it, people, what was the phrasing you used again? That, you know, therefore, some people watch these shows, even though they were told that polls were tired of them. Right. Like they are acting in ways inconsistent with how they represent themselves. You could even say that, well, look, some people might be a little bit hypocritical here, right? They're saying one thing, but they're doing another thing. That's fine. But they took it a step further. They say, ah, but they're portraying like this performative act. They're portraying themselves that they wish to be perceived. So there, I think we've nailed the missing link here between the premise and the conclusion. So this turns out to be one of those necessary assumption questions where the correct answer choice builds this bridge from a concept in the premise to a kind of related concept in the conclusion. And the fact that it's kind of related is why we might overlook it. But if you know, you're know you examining it carefully, you realize, oh, actually, these are different concepts as we just talked about. And so we do need to establish that bridge. So I think B does it. B does a pretty good job. It says, look, last year, almost everybody in the country who claimed in the polls to be tired of the programs, they continue to watch those programs. Isn't that important? I mean, after all, we just came off a question, two questions to talk about the composition issues, right? Like representativeness issues. Don't we need to assume that the people who answer the polls are actually the same people that are responsible for the ratings going up? What if they're two different sets of people? The, the argument never addressed this. It could be. Who knows what these, you know, it says many polls. What many polls? Who ran these polls? Who are these people that you polled? Maybe these people are telling the truth. They said they didn't want to watch it. They didn't watch it. And it's those other people that you did poll, right? Or that answered in the opposite direction that ended up watching it that boosted the rating, right? So isn't B a necessary assumption? I mean, ultimately, no, because we know that's not the right the right <laughs> answer. But uh, there are a couple of things that kill this for me. The, and the first one is almost everyone. Yeah. And really, I should just say, that's really the main thing. Did you just stop reading after almost everyone? Or <laughs> Pretty much, because I couldn't think of any version of you know, a necessary assumption that would require that almost everyone in the editorialist country did anything. You know, right. I mean, again, it, that would be it would be great if that was true. That would be nice, but it's certainly not a necessary assumption. And, and I mean, I get why this fools people though, because one, that's a fine distinction. We're at number twenty four out of a twenty five section, you know, question section, and this almost is the right answer, except for that overgeneralization. But the LSAT just loves to punish overgeneralization. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's too strong. It's just way too strong. Like the question stems are really good at laying out the standard that you need to meet. 
there are sufficient assumption questions or PSA questions that those are questions that lay out a high standard of proof, right? Mm -hmm. Where the wrong answer is wrong because it's too weak. (laughs) You know, you didn't do enough. You proved too little. And then there are these necessary assumption questions where the standard is very finely calibrated to be necessary. You can't overshoot that standard. It has to be necessary. I don't care how much it helps the argument. And as we said, B helps the argument a ton, right? B will be great for the argument if it were true. But the question stem didn't say, find something great for the argument if it were true, right? Is that find a necessary assumption? It's just not necessary. What does almost everyone to you mean? Like, I know it's an ambiguous phrase, but like, what would be a safe percentage if we had to put a percentage on it? It's got to be well over 50%, right? So it's got to be 75%, 80%. Exactly, right? You can't even say oh, it's more than half. Like, almost everyone, it, look, it's, it's, it's a vague boundary, right? I'm not going to say, oh, it's 83.7%. But like, okay, 90% is safe, right? 90%, nobody would dispute that's almost everyone, right? Okay, so... Is it true that we need 90% of the people who claimed that they were tired to have continued to watch it anyway? No. What if it was only, I don't know, 70% that simultaneously claimed they were tired yet continue to watch it anyway? What if it was only 70%, in other words, that were being hypocrites? <laughs> I mean, that's still great for the argument. That's fantastic for the argument. So negating this answer choice doesn't destroy the argument. Yeah because it's not necessary. And I'll say there's, it also lacks what we were just talking about, that we need something that bridges the gap to this as they wish to be portrayed concept. And it doesn't have any mention of that. And we need to get not just that they're, again, this would point to the direction of that alternate phrasing that I'd given earlier, but it doesn't get us to, oh yeah, that they're they're often portraying themselves as they wish to be perceived. Yeah, no, totally, totally. You you still have that issue, right? Of, Of the, as they wish to be perceived issue. Like, where did that come from? Yeah. You are presuming something about these people's psychology that may be unwarranted, that you certainly haven't shown any evidence for. So let's jump now to E, which is the correct answer. Last year, at least some people, and just immediately noticed that this distinction, right? <laughs> oh, from almost everybody to at least some people. Yeah, that's necessary because it, it really, how much lower can you go than that? It's just you go to zero, right? But anyway, at least some people responding in polls wish to be perceived yep. as unwilling to watch the news program. So it fixes both of those yeah, those issues. No, and that that made it really easy to jump on this when I finally got through it is that, okay, I, we finally, it's going in the direction I want, but also, hey, it has that wish to be perceived language that I knew we needed to, to bridge the gap to make this, this argument work. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think we definitely short circuited some of the built in difficulty by jumping, you know, straight to B and then straight to E. Because you have to slog through yes. four crappy answers that try their hardest to confuse you before you even get to look at E. A lot of that difficulty we were able to evade. But let's look at A, right? Which says last year, everybody in the country who claimed to be tired also claimed to be unwilling to watch, right? So in other words, those two claims that people made in the polls, those two claims are perfectly overlapping sets or made by the same people. And A says everybody. So what about that? Pretty much any time I see something like everyone, I am innately suspicious. Uh, and again, that this this was coming up a whole bunch of times in these answer choices. But yeah, the word everyone kills this answer. And again, it, it's just not necessary, right? They don't need to be perfectly overlapping sets. It's okay if like one person or three people who said, oh, I'm tired of watching this, but then didn't say that I'm unwilling. Like, I'm still, I'll still do it, but I'm kind of tired of watching it. Like, okay. Yeah. And again, it doesn't have that portrayal element that we need in order to bridge the gap between the second and the third sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. I think A is worse than B, actually, because it's even stronger. It's even stronger. B is like almost everyone. A is like everybody. And A is talking about this thing that's not even relevant. At least B is kind of helpful. A is like, I don't know if I need these two sets to, to, to be perfectly overlapping. 
know, it'd be interesting. I haven't looked through as many prep tests as you have, but I mean, how often would, would the right answer on a question like this have a word like everyone or have a word like none or have one of those just really kind of crank up the dial all the way to the extreme words like that? I'm sure there's some time that it is, but it just, it's so rare that I almost instinctively cross them off when I get to them. Right, for sure, for sure. I mean, it, it depends. I have seen necessary assumption questions where the correct answer is both necessary and sufficient. That's like fair game, according to the test writers. They'll ask you for the, I mean, sometimes the argument just has one missing link, and that's it. And with that link, the argument's fine. Without it, it's not. So the necessary and sufficient assumption distinction collapses into one, right? So in those kinds of answer questions, you can get answers that are really strongly stated, that are conditional and are still fine. But yeah, like I think in, in an argument like, like this, where there's so many other assumptions going on, like, yeah, you're probably not going to find, you're not going to find that. But anyway, let's look at C. C, I like the phrasing in C. It says at least some people, that's the same as E, right? At least some people who responded to the polls in the country don't believe that their responses were portraying themselves as they actually were. I actually thought this was a little bit more tempting than, than B in some ways, because it has, it's a much more measured, at least some people. It has that portraying themselves concept that we were looking to bridge the gap. But the third sentence of the stem specifically says, this indicates that when responding to polls, whether or not they were aware of it, people are often betraying themselves. And this requires that they did not believe that their responses were betraying themselves. So there's a mismatch there. The conclusion doesn't require that they are aware of the fact that their responses are not betraying themselves as they actually were. Yeah, right? Like it's like, if you are aware of this deception, that's fine. If you're not aware of it, that's fine. I don't really care whether or not you're aware of it. My conclusion is that you are, in effect, you are deceiving. Whether you intended to or not, you're kind of deceiving people. So because that's the conclusion, we don't even need one person. It's not necessary that there is at least one person who didn't believe that they were portraying themselves as they actually were. Yeah. Yeah, they could all be completely ignorant of the fact that they're doing this for the conclusion to work. That's completely fine. So yeah, you can negate this and the argument works just fine. Yeah. And then lastly, he says none of the people in the country who responded. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. yeah they're, again, they're, they're just really beating that one. They really want you to pay attention to whether or not they're defining the scope of their answers correctly. But yeah, last year, none of the people, again, you know, again, this is 24 in the exam. I think I had crossed it off just by the time I get to none. Just on the none. Yeah. I don't know if we mentioned this when we were talking about the conclusion, but it says people often portray themselves. People often. Like that's that's like, no, we're not saying everybody does it or nobody does it or exactly half the people. No, just people often do. Some people do, some people don't, right? So we don't need nobody, as D says, nobody. And I mean, really, you could cut off everything but the first four words of the answer choices on this. We get last year, everyone, last year, almost everyone, last year, at least some, last year, none, and last year, at least some. Okay, well, that by itself, before I read any of the substance of the rest of it, lets me rule off three of the wrong answers, including the one that fooled as many people as got the right one. Right, yeah, more, I think, collectively, right? Oh, did they? Oh, yeah, yeah, if you add them together, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, same percentage for B and E. Yeah, no, you're right. Same percentage for B and E. Yeah. I think just like sort of as a general rule of thumb, it's a good idea. It's like there's a symmetrical rule in most strongly supported questions to pick the weaker answers because, you know, they tend to be more easily supported. 
the weaker they are. And so for a necessary assumption, you pick the weaker answers because the weaker answers tend to be more necessary, just as a rule of thumb. I think that rule has a limit on its usefulness. Like once you hit a certain ceiling, it's not going to cut it anymore. If you don't actually understand what's going on, there are going to be questions that exploit your lack of understanding. I don't know what the ceiling is. I'm guessing it's somewhere in the mid 160s, above which, you know, reliance upon these like hand wavy rules of thumb that doesn't get to the core of why something is what it is, is going to be problematic. But certainly this whole game is about picking up low hanging fruit. So certainly if you have gains to be made, like in the 140s, 150s, this is a fantastic rule of thumb. You should definitely use it. Well, and something I'll, I'll recommend even to clients who have much higher scores than that, but who maybe struggle with timing. Let's say they hit this and it wasn't question 24, but it was question 13. Okay, well, no, let's use that rule of thumb, but let's flag it. Yeah. You know, so let's give the 30 second answer, flag it, and then come back to it and really pour over it in detail when we have time. Because most of the time, the rule of thumb is going to get you right. It's certainly going to give you a pretty good guess as to what's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if you play this game over and over, the you know, the rule of thumb is it's like you're kind of improving your odds. So even if you do want to use the detailed analysis, you can still prioritize which answers you analyze first. Like you can be like, well, maybe I want to look at E first. Maybe I want to look at C first because they're the weaker answers. No, I think that's exactly right. And I mean, again, at some point, I mean, if you finish with five, you know, LR every time with five minutes to spare, then timing strategies really become largely irrelevant. But for a significant percentage of our clients and test takers, no, no, they're not finishing with huge amounts of time. They might have a couple of minutes to go back and check flags. So anything that lets them more efficiently allocate that time to you know, answer as many questions right as possible can really be helpful. Yeah, totally. Any last minute tips on this one? No, I think that pretty well covers it. Nice. All right. Well, this has been a lot of fun. I hope this has been helpful for people listening to this, but I know I certainly enjoyed nerding out <laughs> on LSAT with you, Scott. Likewise. All right. Until next time. All right. I hope you found that helpful. If you want more in-depth analyses of these and all the other questions from PrepTest 92, we've got full explanations, both in video and text form on 7 if you are enrolled, you'll have access to our core curriculum, which covers the LSAT's foundational concepts, and a library of video explanations for all logical reasoning questions from prep test 17 up to the most recent prep test, which at the time of this recording is this one, prep test 92. That's well over 3,500 videos, and that's just for logical reasoning. You'll also have access to all reading comprehension and logic games videos for every single prep test ever released. Now, if you're looking for more one-on-one -on -one help with a tutor, get in touch. We've got a great tutoring team, including Scott, and we'll do a free consultation so you can get a sense of whether tutoring would be a good fit. That's it for this episode. Take care of yourself and see you next time.